Hi, guys, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined by not one, but two RDs today, people. We have registered dietitians <laughs> all over the place up in here. Whoa. I am so, yes. so excited for this, too. I already told Elena when we first got on, I feel like a fangirl because I have followed this woman on Instagram for a while, and I feel like a creepy creeper. But I messaged her here and there, and finally I was just like, hey, do you want to be on my podcast? Because you're awesome. And she said, yes. So without further ado, uh, I have a little bit to tell you about Miss Elena Kunicki, right? Kunicki is how you pronounce your last name. And you can find her coincidentally at Elena Kunicki underscore RD on Instagram. And she has her own podcast, the Weightlifting Nutritionist Podcast, which used to be her Instagram handle, funny enough. She just made the switch not that long ago. But uh, Elena is a registered dietitian, like our friend Amy here, who helps women heal their relationship with food and fitness and regulate their hormones. So I see a lot of posts about losing your period and binge eating and restrictive eating and dieting and yo-yo stuff and like body image issues. And a lot of this seems to come from your own experience, which I didn't realize until we were emailing back and forth that she had her own six-year-long restrictive eating and food relationship. And she worked on a lot of things herself and kind of like overcame a lot of that through nutrition and weightlifting and probably a whole lot more that she can describe to us. But she now offers online coaching for women around the world. And she specializes in helping women break the cycle of binging and restricted eating so they could get their periods back naturally and they could just be happy and healthy and live their life. So I am so excited to talk about how the world of restricted eating and binge eating and yo-yo dieting translates into the world of gut health and how the two could be related and just your experience and I don't know, tell us all. That's all I got. Tell us everything. I'm so excited. Oh my Not god! The spot, but tell me all the things. I am so excited to talk to you. So ready, go. Okay, everything. Tell you everything. <laughs> yes. Well, that was a great intro. That was a pretty accurate intro. Yeah, I would say my. My experience, I would definitely say my experience with all of these things is what that is, is the thing that led me to do the work that I do now. It's what led me to become a dietitian. But it was first from a, from that place of an unhealthy obsession with food and exercise, which I think Amy can probably attest to this most RDs. That's why they get into dietetics, which is why there's a high percentage of eating disorders among dietitians. But mm-hmm. that was definitely the case for me. But luckily, you can also work to help people be free from eating disorders as a dietitian. So I was able to still use that that career path to do the work that I do now. So yeah, I think you did a really good job of introducing things. So do you want me to talk more about my own journey? What, what are you interested in hearing more about? Or di- my own journey with digestion? I could talk more specifically about that because that was a pretty big factor for me, especially my digestive issues was a pretty big factor in me, like the turning point of when I realized I really had a problem and I needed to mm. change something. So I could talk okay. about that. Yeah, no, I think that's a good place to start, right, Amy? Like hear yeah. a little bit about your For background sure. no, and your, your story. Yeah. So as Amy said, and if if any of you follow me on Instagram, I struggled with all the all the things that we've spoke about. So binge eating, constant anxieties and thoughts around food, obsession with exercise and constantly feeling like I needed to move, uh, extreme fear of weight gain. I grew up as, you know, the chubbier kid in a group of really thin friends and I was teased for my weight in school mm-hmm. and it was really just like a normal process of gaining weight before puberty that 
many women, most mm. women experience because we need those body fat levels to get to the appropriate estrogen levels to then get our first period. Um, and if I would have just let that process play out, and actually, initially, I did because I didn't start dieting until later on, I just got taller and became, you know, just a medium sized person. And that was that. But because of those like early implanted body image issues, and just mm. the culture around women being placing a lot of their self worth and value in how they look, that was kind of already etched in my mind. So even after I was no longer, you know, overweight based on BMI, which is problematic anyways, in my opinion, um, I, I had that those body image issues ingrained and felt this huge desire to lose weight. So I was never really into exercise, structured exercise, I was into movement in terms of like getting outside being active. I like gymnastics and dance, but I was not a competitive person. I didn't really like to do like structured exercise. But when I when I decided I wanted to start losing weight, to me, the easiest way to go about that was running. So it all started with running for me. And then trying diet after diet, calorie counting until I finally found some concoction of rules that I could actually stick to. And then once I did get myself to stick to them, that's when the disorder thinking really came in because it was like, oh, with enough discipline, I can really, really like control my weight. And then that just became an obsession and all the compliments that flooded in when my body changed a lot, it just became like an intense fear of losing that, which is how my clients experience this too. Um, it's usually, that's usually what sets in that extreme fear of weight gain is all the positive reinforcement when your body does change. Um, so I never really struggled with digestive issues very much, but, and, and even in the beginning of my journey, when I first lost weight and quote unquote got fit, um, I, I, my digestion was fine. And if anything, maybe it was better because I started, it, it wasn't so bad at first. Like I started eating more vegetables, started being a bit more active. You know, it was, it was not a huge deal. I didn't have the unhealthiest of mindsets around it, even though it was not coming from the best place initially. Mm -hmm. But then, like I said, once I had that influx of compliments and developed that extreme fear of losing, losing that pride that I had in my physique now, um, it was around the time that I entered college. And in the US, we have this, this talk of the freshman 15, yep. which is like, oh, when you go to college, you gain weight because of the dining halls and drinking and all that stuff. So when I heard that, and I had just lost all this weight and had this, this amazing body transformation, I was like, no way am I going to gain the freshman 15. Mm -hmm. And that just enhanced that fear even more. So instead of I wanted to keep what I had, but I was so fearful that I really became I, I really became more restrictive because I was like trying to offset this potential, just this fear of like, oh, I might overeat here or I might yeah. not work out this day. So I felt like I had to really be even more restrictive. So that's when things got bad. That's when I lost my period. That's when I was really developing like anorexia type symptoms, although I never actually registered as like an under an 18.5 BMI. So I didn't like qualify as that diagnosis, but I was basically there. Um, that's when I lost my period. That's when the digestive issues really started to set in. And then shortly after that restrictive period is when, or re extreme restrictive period is when the binging started. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then I eventually went transit transitioned from running to lifting and the dieting and controlling behaviors changed over the next four years of college, but the digestive issues only got worse. So as you can imagine, with just the continued, and I know we'll talk about this, but with the continued restriction, the continued over exercise, the continued like 
overconsumption of these extremely voluminous and fibrous foods because I would just I was so afraid of eating calorically dense foods. I wanted to feel physically full, but eating the least calories as I possibly could. Yeah. And then the binging and the stress of it all just made things get worse mm -hmm. until by the time I graduated school and I and I I came back to my parents' house in New York City because I was gonna do my dietetic internship here. I had I got I had gotten to a point where I had diet my my morning bowel movement was diarrhea every single day mm. it was just diarrhea and, then, and well, yeah. i'm sure you guys talk about this stuff all the time so i'll get into the nasty details um, we, yeah. we like poop talk over yes here. yes so every single day i was having diarrhea and i was already experiencing even before then like alternating constipation mm. diarrhea um i didn't really have any clear food intolerances it was like I would just sometimes my digestion would just flare up and I would get extreme bloat, extreme cramping and like debilitating where I just have to crawl into a ball. And that would sort of just it seemed to happen randomly. But my main things were at the end of the day, I would just feel very, very bloated, feel like there was a rock in my stomach um, in like the lower lower GI and have what I call toxic farts, which are like farts that I had never encountered before in my life. <laughs> like what is happening it would linger in the room for hours it was just mm. a mess so that was the main that was the main issue and then once I came home there was some sort of just trigger maybe it was the life transition my binges had hit their worst point I was like restricting even harder during the week and I just was like okay I'm having diarrhea every single day I went to the the gastroenterologist they couldn't find anything they just like slapped me with the diagnosis of IBS and were kind of like not really sure what's going on you just have IBS, um, couldn't find any celiac or anything like that. I was zinc deficient. I had other, I had B vitamin deficiencies. My blood pressure was low. And I'm like, I put all this effort into, you know, trying to be so healthy and fit. And I have this facade to other people where they think I'm the most fit, healthy person they yeah. know, but I'm not happy. I'm clearly not healthy. And I feel like shit mentally most of the time. So what am I really doing? Um, and that's where things really changed. So the digestion stuff was a big catalyst for me to be like, okay, this is, I have an eating disorder. Like I didn't want to admit that to myself yeah. because I was never underweight and I didn't look like I had one. So that was a big catalyst for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting that yeah. you say you didn't even start out with digestive issues. And then that just came about over time, the more restrictive you were and the worse off that became. Sorry, we were going to say something though, Amy. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's really awesome we're talking about this because I feel like when people come to Nikki and I, they're restricting to try to calm down symptoms. But like they could still be under eating in the process of restricting, but it's coming from a different place. I also see there's sort of these stealth, like sometimes stealth people that come to work with us that may be restricting for symptoms, but have also been chronic dieters mm -hmm. that you don't really realize like, oh, they, and maybe there is a component of a lot of physical activity and just not matching the intake mm -hmm. that they need to be at. And even me, sometimes I'll talk to them and I'm like, oh, what is it? What are you eating? Like, do you feel good? And they're like, yeah, I think I'm eating enough. And I'm like, let's like double check. And, you know, when we look underneath the curtain or pull back the curtain, it, it turns out they're way under eating for what they're actually doing. And I, I think because we live in such a thin centric mm. world, like everything's about cutting calories, 
like I feel like people's reference points completely off, especially from a woman a woman standpoint. Um, you know, maybe there's a there's an intentional dieting piece for a lot of women that we, that I think underlies some of the gut issues coming up, and then they focus on restricting other things like um, low FODMAP things like that. And then I also wonder too, again, if there's a lot of people that are that are unintentionally under eating. Um, that aren't necessarily specifically dieting, but they're still doing high intensity workouts, CrossFit, maybe even not that intense, but still just under eating for what they're doing and how that impacts the gut can be huge. And it's very easy to get caught up in supplements and things that you need to do supplementally and like the fanciness of treating gut issues. But if you're not nourished, it's going to be impossible to really make progress. Um, and it sounds like you learned that through your journey, which is, I'm so glad that you're here to, to talk about that. Cause I think it's such a huge issue. Like we, we don't typically, I've, or I don't think we have yet talked about sort of how just the undercurrent of our culture being so diet focused might be affecting gut issues across the board and maybe that that could be a root causal factor that someone's mm. intentionally under eating. We see a lot of unintentional under eating, but there's still some intentional uh, dieters that that could be a big root cause for them. Um, you guys, you said something really important about like just the cultural obsession with thinness, because if obviously mm -hmm. for my clients and in my case, there was, like you said, intentional under eating, but I just think women in general have a skewed perspective of what enough food really looks like. So I could see how that right. would influence people like your clientele. Right. It's yeah. like, you know, we're talking and they're like, oh yeah, I'm getting like, you know, 1500 calories a day. And they might be, you know, even if they're walking a lot, like maybe they're doing low intensity stuff, like that's still not enough for like their age, their activity level. Um, and I will say sometimes I've gotten a lot of resistance too, like from a couple clients where we have tried to add calories in and they did start to gain some weight. And that like, you know, is scary if you're someone who it has been dieting for a while that there's a big fear mm -hmm. around that. Um, and I think this, I have one particular case. This is like right when I started out as a dietitian out of school, it was the first summer that I was seeing clients and I had a, I was working with a, a woman who was also in the health space. So she was like a coach of some sort, a health coach. Um, if I remember right. And she was, you know, getting 1200 calories a day and do like lift, lifting oh, no. maybe three times a week doing, um, doing like pretty active. She had like a young child, um, feeling miserable, like had every symptom that you could imagine of, of under being undernourished. Um, and we kept slowly building calories up because she was like very apprehensive and she did gain, you know, maybe 10 pounds or so like during our time. And I'm like, you know what, like it's a part of the process. Your body's hasn't been used to getting what it needs. Um, mm -hmm. But I remember like, so with this particular client, she went to her doctor and this is what her doctor said. I still can't believe it to this day that I was creating unnecessary oh stress 
on on this woman that she didn't need to eat, you know, we were, I think when we stopped, she was at about 1800 calories. We were like slowly building up, but the doctor like basically was bitching about me saying like, I was stressing this woman out and then she stopped working with me because she got validation from her doctor who probably knows nothing. As though Um, eating 1200 calories a day and weightlifting three times a week was not stressing this person out. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So like, and I think what you were saying about before, like the medical system, just relying on the BMI so much um, and not really understanding nutrition either. And it being sort of a shaming, I feel like it's a very shaming um, space for a lot of people that are you know, going through changes. And I don't know, that's, that was very frustrating. I, I, that was like traumatizing for me as a new dietitian. I feel like that's why it's like burned into my brain. Um, Welcome to your new field. Bam. Right. Right. Never forget this. New field. Like doctors are going to like undermine you with a client. Um, Pretty much. But yeah, it's that, that was wild. I don't know if you've ever like had experience like that with, with some doctors oh before i could i could write a book on how many how how much cursing is allowed on this podcast as much as you want yeah yeah we go for the goal i could i could write a book on the shit that doctors tell my clients and it's so it's so like it's upsetting to me because i don't want to be the person you know there's this i i know you guys are aware of this there's like all this this polarization with conventional medicine versus naturopathic integrative functional medicine and like demonization of doc of conventional doctors. Yeah. And I don't want to be that person because there's plenty of great doctors out there, but it is, it is just maddening the shit that doctors will tell my clients, whether it's you can't lose your period from under eating unless you're below an 18.5 BMI, whether it's like shaming them about their weight and basically invalidating that they had any issues about food, any issues with food and saying like, oh, you shouldn't have gained this weight and like just right. talking to them and, and triggering yeah. them when they have, when they know nothing about their case. And also just thinking that they're the authority on weight and nutrition when it's like, yeah. you're not, and that's okay. You don't have to be, you you went to medical school. Like you should be focusing yeah. on medicine and that's good. We need medicine. But yeah, I've had, I have had plenty of situations like that, whether it's hormonal, whether it's weight related, whether it's like just literally just perpetuating myths about eating disorders, like telling right. my clients, like they, there's so much weight bias specifically within, I mean, it's everywhere, but I see it a lot in the conventional medicine world of like, well, no, what do you mean you had an eating disorder? Like you don't, you know, you were never underweight or you're just, you look very fit. Like you just lost your period because you're super fit. This is normal. Just get on the pill. Like the, I have heard that from most of my clients, doctors, like I can probably count on two of my hands out of right. all the women I've worked with the doctors who didn't tell them that. And that's just with hormonal stuff. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. And and I will say one other thing too, and you brought it up, but I wanted to highlight it a little bit. It's that like, I do find it really maddening. And I, and I get that there might be like, there might need to be some collaboration on it, but like as dietitians, we can't diagnose an eating disorder either, even though like it could be so clear to us, like it has to be diagnosed by an MD. But yeah, like yeah. what we're saying now, like MDs are are not 
paying attention to it at all because all they're they're thinking about is BMI. Yeah. And not really. Yeah. And I find too that there's there's so little time that they have with a client that they I mean they can't really totally understand the full case. And I feel like they don't really develop the skills to coach because they have, you know, a 10 minute yeah. window. Like how are you going to actually coach someone? Oh yeah. So I, most of the, most of the problem is really the medical system that like makes right. them that way. Right. Well, that's the thing. I think that pretty much everybody, I tell my patients this a lot. I think that most people who get into the medical field, like conventional medicine, probably are good, well-intentioned, smart people exactly. who like want to make a difference and they want to help people and they wanted to put their brilliant brains to good use. But then going through medical school and then going through like a residency or getting a job in the real world burns them the yeah. F out. Exactly. And then we're dealing with like, when you go to your doctor, there's a high likelihood that that person is depressed, anxious, has insomnia, or is just fucking miserable because they exactly. hate their life and they realize how broken of a system it is. And then guess what? They're not going to give you the time of day. They can't anyway, even if they want to, because exactly. they get, you know, five or 10 minute appointments and they have to bill your insurance a certain way. But like, I think that a lot of doctors like unconsciously decide to care less because if they cared more, it would make them more depressed. And I think it's like a self-preservation thing. I think that a lot of doctors kind of like have this don't give a shitness to them because it's like they're putting up that wall to shield themselves from how horrible their profession actually is. But, you know, like if I joke all the time, if I walk into the street and my arm gets lobbed off by oncoming traffic, please, God, bring me to UNC, give me all exactly. the antibiotics, give me morphine, stitch it back on, like they're wonderful at saving lives. But if I develop like diabetes, or an eating disorder, or IBS, or an autoimmune disease, or another one, like, that's the kind of stuff where I would tend to not rely on them, because it's just going to be a five minute appointment. Here's a drug. See you later. Peace out. And exactly. it's not a good system for keeping people healthy, but it's a decent system for keeping people alive. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yes, but no, Wait. I totally agree with what you said about about everything you said about about doctors. That's like it's a tangent, but it's a really important tangent because it, the more and more I work with clients, it's so frustrating to me because I don't again, I don't want to demonize demonize these medical professionals, but it's like yeah. it's pure pure neg negligence and ignorance and it makes things so much worse and it's caused it's caused so many of my clients to just like struggle for way longer than they than they needed to yeah. and invalidating their own issues because their doctor is invalidating them basically yeah or like what we said before too is like with certain i i think that oftentimes whether it's consciously or unconsciously people are so desperate to avoid the big elephants in the room and the big scary topics that then <laughs> Like, like Amy, with your client, what you're saying, like, I think that person was probably resistive to the idea of adding calories in and wanted any other option, literally, right. like, if you told her to drink arsenic, and that would cure her whatever, like, she'd be like, okay, that's a more appealing option than adding in calories. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, or like people who are really like up to here with stress. And we try to have the conversation of like, hey, your vagus nerve is probably toast you could benefit highly from like meditation or taking a walk every day or getting a dog or like doing something for stress. And if that person, uh, whatever level, like if they 
feel like it's too hard or too scary or unappealing to tackle the big stuff, they're going to try to look for other things and validation for some other avenue. So like this patient, like as soon as that doctor said, oh, that dietitian is causing unnecessary stress, I bet on some level her brain was like, yes, uh-huh, oh, I, yeah. I have this other option now. Peace the fuck out, Amy. And just like, now right. I don't have to deal with the scary thing or the hard thing that I didn't want to deal with. And I can like live in that denial for much longer. And that's so frustrating for us when we see that. And we're like, but like, you really could benefit from but this. It, if but you it's just necessary stress. It's necessary yeah. stress. Like it's not unnecessary. It is necessary. Right. Healing, but, healing from disordered eating is really, really scary and stressful yeah. at first. Yeah. And healing, I'm sure working through IBS issues, it's, it's a similar thing. Gaining weight for most women, even if it's what they need to do for their health, is also extremely stressful, but that doesn't mean right. that it's not it's not necessary <laughs> or it's not going to cause right. less stress in the long term. Right. Well, and it's like, would you rather have stress for a finite <laughs> amount of time? Say like, okay, say, say you gain five or 10 pounds and then you have to kind of like deal with that as a stressor for a few months and then you can decide like where that fits in with the grand scheme of your health, but you've been able to introduce more food, more calories and get your IBS under control like, would you rather deal with a medium amount of, or let's say even, let, would you rather deal with a low to medium amount of chronic stress every day, potentially for the rest of your life, because you're sweeping things under the rug? Or would you rather deal with like a medium or maybe high amount of stress for a couple of months while you're actively healing stuff and working on root causes, and then know that in the long run, you're going to get dividends on that investment? Yeah, like, right. It right. sucks to rip off the Band-Aid. And it's going to hurt to rip off the Band-Aid, but it can be really worthwhile to actually get to the root cause of what's going on. So Yeah, yeah. And, and I think too, like, to me, it's like balancing the mental and physical stressors. It's kind of like what I, what I hear you say, Nikki. It's like there's the mental hurdle that you have to overcome with the weight gain. Like that's the major yeah. struggle. But then you're also alleviating some of the physical stressors that occur when you're under eating. And so like, there is a give and a take there. And, and I will say like, in the situation with my past client, like, it was like, it was like, we were getting her up this big hill already, like she was already mm-hmm. resistant somewhat and scared and freaked out. But we were like, slowly pushing her up this hill. And that doctor, like, I'm thinking of all those videos, like on TikTok, where people are trying to like, go up an icy slope. And they're like falling, you know, they're like supposed to be like cheeky and funny. Like, that's what I feel like happened with this like woman. It's like, okay, we were like halfway up the hill. We were like getting like to a good place, but just like everything got ripped out Mm -hmm. the second that doctor said anything. And she kind of stumbled right down the hill again. And you're back at square one. And yeah, I think you're exactly right. There was like a validation for like turning away when things were getting into the most probably the most challenging point um and it's it's sad that like we weren't able to to get over the hill together i hope she found someone that could help her but yeah um it's i think permission to ignore the things you desperately want to ignore is a really scary crack addiction like it's especially from that's a a really powerful drug yeah yeah and And I will say too, like, I'd love to hear more uh, about 
some of the gut symptoms you had? Because I, I think in the eating disorder yeah. world, like eating disorder dietitians know, like gut symptoms are very common when you have eating disorders or disordered eating or under eating or, or whatever kind of condition you're, you're dealing with in that vein. But like things like constipation, slow motility, or even diarrhea, again, like what you were experiencing, um, it is a, is common knowledge in that world. But I feel like in like the functional world, that's, and I, again, maybe the functional integrative space has a lot of disordered eating ideas anyway. So like maybe there's denial there um, from a lot of practitioners, I so. which I wholeheartedly agree with. Like I, I sort of see it and it's alarming at times, but um, I'd be curious to like learn a little bit more about the gut dysfunction that you typically see. It sounded like diarrhea was the major thing for you. Um, tell me like sort of what you typically see with your clients that are under eating yeah symptoms yeah and i made a note because i definitely want to talk about like the functional how like <laughs> yeah. that how that because because that that's where i turned to when i was dealing with the digestive mm-hmm. issues and that's where a lot of my clients turn and it can it's so important like i take yeah. a very root cause you know integrative approach mm-hmm. anyways but it's like to me it's more it's actually like truly holistic to also look at someone's relationship to food and a lot right. of functional yes. holistic practice practitioners are not they're just ignoring that piece, even though they're talking about they're looking at all the whole person. I'm like, well, what about and then they're usually recommending some other restricted diet to their yeah, patients? Exactly. <laughs> That's what that was the case. That was the case for me. But um, to your question about what I typically see. Yeah, it's really food intolerances is a big one. This wasn't as much the case for myself. But I'll see like I've had clients and this is not always the case. Sometimes they truly do just have an intolerance. It's, it's separate from the eating disorder. But I've seen many clients be intolerant to certain foods. And then after we go through the whole recovery process, they can eat foods again, like dairy or gluten or um, like just random fruits or vegetables or nuts that used to give them issues. Um, And that was the case for me kind of, but I didn't really have very clear um, intolerances, very excessive bloat and distension. And I know the word bloat almost annoys me at this point because I think people use it so and you guys I'm sure feel this hard but like people are just like oh I'm so bloated and it's like either you maybe you gained a little weight or maybe like you just ate food and like you have food in your stomach because you don't just go through the day without digesting food and producing gases but I'm talking like severe distension and pain Um, like you look pregnant yes exactly um gas pain that you know radiates all all over uh gastroesophageal reflux disease or acid reflux that's a big mm. one um and i know you guys know this like with low stomach acid that's obviously really connected to stress and restriction and yes. and that can can cause that so that's a big one i'll see with clients um also like SIBO like symptoms like i know for me mm. and SIBO i mean i don't i don't work like to the extent you guys do where you're really digging into the gut issues i just work on the relationship to food piece and give maybe some we'll do a little bit of like cursory work with gut but if my clients are really struggling aside from just their relationship to food I refer out but um yeah SIBO like symptoms so like that that's this was a big one for me just feeling like there's something fermenting in your lower intestine and that you have Mm -hmm. a, a brick and it's like I would get like a burning sensation the toxic farts that's very common with my clients as well um 
And then like motility issues, whether it's constipation or diarrhea or alternating, um, both either they're constipated or they're having loose stools, really like every single possible digestive issue that can be had. Yeah. (laughs) But those are the big ones I would say that I see. Yeah. Yeah. So basically everything we talk about on this podcast and everything right. that we see with our patients, honestly. Yeah. Like, and then I what mean, that leads to, and then what that leads to, like stuff that comes from that. So, you know, nutrient deficiencies and all the right. things that can be connected to that. I mean, you just, the list could go on and on, but skin issues, acne, dry skin. I used to get, I used to have seborrheic dermatitis all over my scalp. Like I would have these rough, mm. itchy patches all over my scalp. And, and I had a B vitamin deficiency, which I've, from my research, can be linked to that. And after I went through recovery and my digestive issues healed, that wasn't the case anymore. Um, but yeah, even eczema, autoimmune type symptoms can happen. Um, so yeah, it's just it, lots of different stuff. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. And then, you know, then how crazy is it that then perhaps somebody went through like their teens or their 20s you know, trying to lose weight or dieting or doing yo-yo dieting. And then maybe they develop gut issues secondary to that because now they've been malnourished and they've been frying their vagus nerve for God knows how long. And their nervous system is just like up to here with stress. And then what is oftentimes the case, and I'll throw my profession under the bus and we can segue into that. I love doing this, by the way, (laughs) is then people will start to restrict more. So now it's like, okay, I have to be low calorie or low fat or low carb because I want to maintain my physique. And now I need to do low FODMAP. Or I also need to combine that with AIP or paleo or keto or whatever it might be. And now I've seen a lot more people in recent years where it's it's not good enough to just do one crazy restrictive diet. (laughs) They have to combine like two or three. Like I had a guy and I was, we were messaging Amy and I because I was just like freaking out with this one patient, but he was working with a well-respected functional medicine clinic in my area. And like, I actually know somebody who works there, like they're well-known. He was diagnosed with SIBO. Um, And when I looked at his breath test, I'm actually not convinced that he has SIBO based on his breath test, but they had him doing Whole30 (laughs) because he had some food sensitivities picked up on a test result. So they figured, all right, Rather than telling this individual to just eliminate gluten, dairy, and soy, because those were, I think, the three that he had on that test, they said, ah, just do Whole30, cut out even more stuff just because, and do low FODMAP because you've got to kill the SIBO, and we think you have hydrogen sulfide SIBO, so also low sulfur diet. All combined. Oh, no. And the poor guy was normal weight to begin with, and he, I think he's six feet or six foot one, he lost 40 pounds. No. And the thing that kills me is that this clinic, like I could almost give a little bit of a free pass if an MD let that slide. It was like, oh, like you're losing weight. Cool. They have a nutritionist on staff. And the nutritionist, after he had lost like 10 or 20 pounds, the nutritionist was like, oh, that's okay. That's fine. And then he came to me and he had lost 40 pounds. He was emaciated. And he's just like, you know, what do I do? And now we're trying to, figure out what all we're going to do with this poor guy who might not even have SIBO to begin with. And they incorrectly interpreted his breath test results. And I'm just like, WTF is going on. But wow. it's like, you can't have somebody restricting that many layers of things, like pick a few and stick with it. And even the thing that kills me too, is that this particular guy was on a low sulfur diet because they thought he had hydrogen sulfide overgrowth. 
And they had him supplementing with glutathione. I was like, this is so dumb. <laughs> just eat red meat. Right. Just eat the food that has sulfur because you're negating any of that with a sulfur containing supplement. Anyway, anyway, I'm just, I'm. That's so rough. I yeah. think, you know. What were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, uh, I was just going to say, I think that there's, um, you know, integrative and functional people very frequently, if they're an MD, a DO, a PA, an NP, those are still the people who had had one nutrition class in med school, maybe. And then they certainly haven't kept up with the nutritional field since then, typically. And then they go to like a couple of IFM seminars where they talk about the importance of food and yay, Rosh And then they go out into the world and they're like, I am a functional doctor. I'm an integrative doctor. And here, here's this elimination diet that I'm going to have you do. Here's a handout. And it's still like, they don't get the nutrition thing. Yeah. Like it, it's frustrating because, you know, functional medicine doctors and integrative, et cetera, doctors will tell you all day, every day, food is medicine. And like genes load the gun and environment and nutrition like pulls the trigger, which I hate that analogy anyway. But then they just give the person a handout. And they're like, here you go. Or several handouts to combine several shitty diets. And it's like, you. oftentimes people need more than that. And I do think that to your point, Amy, I think that in that space, there is a lot of disordered type eating. And I think that's part of what happened with me. Like I was going to functional medicine seminars and learning about how all of these foods are evil. <laughs> like gluten is evil. Now it turns out I'm a celiac. So that actually was worthwhile. Hearing. But like gluten is evil. Soy is evil. Dairy is evil. Corn is evil. Grains are evil. Lectins are evil. And, you know, you would hear these big, well-respected people at these seminars talk about the evils of various nutrients or how autoimmune people shouldn't eat X, Y, and Z and SIBO people shouldn't eat X, Y, and Z. And I think that almost always the main focus in the functional, integrative, et cetera space, nutritionally speaking, is going to be on eliminating foods. Very, very rarely is there a conversation about introducing new foods or making sure that people are actually nutritionally replete beyond taking a multivitamin. Ed Rand. Yeah. <laughs> you, you next. I yeah. Like... Yeah. And I, what you said about, and this is something that I've really observed because for me, like I like with my own personal journey, I, I, I always turn towards the functional side of things. So I really like mm-hmm. thrust myself into that world just in terms of my own personal education. And then I've seen a lot of clients do the same thing. And you know, it has so much value. And I'm so grateful for practitioners like you guys, because you combine like you have the good parts of that without the bad parts of that. But it's really like what you said about the evils of these certain foods. I see like the demonization of foods coming like the most from that space. Because it's like, like, relax. Like, it's not that like, literally the the morality around gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, it's like, it's, it's too much. It's like, I don't, it's how, how, how do we think that that's really healthy? Because these foods are ubiquitous in our food system. Yes, maybe for some people, it's not that they, they, they need to modify their consumption or whatever, include other foods. But yeah. yeah, that's just one thing I wanted to say, because I feel like that I'm, I really see a lot of that in that space. And it's something that it just seems again, for for a space that claims to be so holistic. I'm like, I came to the realization that it, it is so not because how do you how do you not think for the for example, the man that you're talking about that patient that you're talking about? Yeah. How do you not think that eating like three foods is not going to cause so much mental stress 
And being a holistic practitioner, know that mental stress via the vagus nerve impacts and other things impacts your physical health. Like literally, it's one and the same, basically. How do you not know that? How do you not thinking about that? You know? Yeah. I've observed, I think functional medicine oftentimes is very protocol driven. Yeah. Um, I see this in professional forums a lot. Like I'm in a, a whole ton of like integrative and functional medicine groups where colleagues can talk to each other about cases. I'm sure you guys are in some for dietetics as well, but like every day I had to unfollow all the groups and I just go in there when I need to search for something because it was driving me insane to see every single day, multiple people going on there and saying, what's your best SIBO protocol? Ready, go. What's your best candida protocol? Ready, go. What's your best acne protocol? Ready, go. And it's like, there's no protocol. Like treat the person in front of you. And even like, I started realizing this as I started going to herbal medicine conferences and hanging out with herbalists, I realized the deficits in my own profession in this regard. Like I'm still grateful for functional medicine and I'm still grateful for everything that it's taught me. But like, I don't seek out functional medicine seminars anymore personally, because I felt like it became this situation where like you would hear in the lecture that, oh, this patient had heavy metal burden and you put them through a detox protocol. And then you would go out into the hallway and there would be 10 different supplement companies all trying to sell you their proprietary detox powder product. And, you know, it's like whoever swoons you the best gets your business indefinitely for all of your career. And, you know, it's like the people who end up going with Apex Clearvite will only use Clearvite. For all of their detox protocols, for the rest of their clinical careers, they will only ever use that product. And then the people who land on, you know, a metagenics product, they will use that for all of their detox. And it's like, can't you handle detoxification differently, as an example, depending on what the person is burdened with, or depending on the person? Like, if I have a person who has, like, I I was talking with a lady recently, she has polycystic ovary syndrome infertility. She's basically been told she's a lost cause. She's not overweight. She's not insulin resistant. She does not have high testosterone, but her doctors would love to put her on metformin anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, there's actually quite a lot of research that toxic burden in some way, shape or form is linked to PCOS. So like, maybe this is a conversation to, br- to bring up with this patient, but I'm going to approach that detoxification scenario a hell of a lot differently as opposed to like a dude who has fatty liver disease and SIBO and also has, I don't know, like smoked cigarettes every day for 40 years. Yeah. Both of them need detox support potentially, but they're going to be radically different. So in herbal medicine, I'm finding that the herbalists are a lot more able to say, oh, maybe I would use Shizandra for this person, whereas I would use, you know, Dandelion for this person or whatever. Um, but yeah, the protocol base piece of functional medicine has driven driven me kind of bonkers. And I see the same thing like, oh, you know, I've seen SIBO patients come from that same clinic multiple times. Like I kind of know their protocol now. Mm. Like, all right, biofilm disruptor, kill some shit, restrictive diet. Like, it, I don't know. It's ta-da. Yeah, ta-da, you're cured. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. I feel like shaking up by the shoulders sometimes and saying like, look at the person. <laughs> like, you know, uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. I, I actually want you to borrow my poop emoji costume, Nikki, and go down to the clinic and shake some, shake some people. 
Take some <laughs> blue action. <laughs> Snap out some, of it. But I, I, one thing I'd add to that we were talking about, like, you know, the functional space being kind of promoting disordered eating in a way, like mm-hmm. it's a recipe for disordered eating if you're not careful. And there's such a lack of appreciation for nutrition as a whole, if you're just re- only restricting and then you're only seeing like, you know, if there's still problems, it's because the diet isn't restrictive enough. It's never because, you know, nutrition yeah. isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. So making that switch, I think it's challenging. And, and it all, also like, what I've observed too, like your client who lost all that weight and was put on that protocol and it just wasn't a good fit at all and was made him under eat essentially. Um, but sometimes going to the conventional medical system that doesn't like that doesn't totally deplete nutrition, but maybe they put you on an antibiotic and they give you some prokinetic support. Some people are better off from that than going. Yeah down the restrictive rabbit hole like i see that a decent amount of time like if someone hasn't gone down the functional road and i somehow catch them like after working with a conventional situation usually they haven't gone down the diet rabbit hole and they're in a much better spot than someone that's been down the restrictive diet hole for years and years and years and has just continued to restrict and restrict because that's the model it's the model yeah. is not add stuff back in and make sure you're nourished and making that switch for people, I think is hard too. like as a, yeah. sometimes getting them to th- think outside of trying to starve the SIBO um, yeah. is a tough, a tough call. And, and in terms of like, for you, mindset techniques, like, for some of the mindset, uh, and I know for you, like it might be mindset of like gaining weight or even transitional symptoms of adding calories in. That's one thing that I see often is like, you know, if you're adding 500 calories in and maybe we go a little slowly depending on the person, some people can jump right into it. Other people need to take it a little bit more slowly. Some people might need more digestive support. Um, but like, I think that's the hard part for people with digestive stuff to wrap their heads around sometimes is like, oh my gosh, I already feel bloated and I have to add more food in. And like the same thing would probably be said for some of the people that you're working with that are having gut issues. When you have those scenarios where people are like, you know, feeling really bloated, the thought of adding food back in seems really challenging. What? Do you have particular steps that you do or mindset stuff that you work on when you're in those scenarios? Yeah. Like yeah. How do you help people overcome that yeah. mental hurdle. Yeah. 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 So, but yeah, so I have like clients in sort of like two different camps. Obviously it's different for each person, but I have some clients where, where all literally all they need to do. And this was very much the case for me is just start allowing food again, full permission to eat exercise break is it can be huge huge like sometimes that especially with bloat like if we just start there um I'll get into that in a second but say so say one client one type of client is when they take the exercise break and they just skip full permission to eat everything is like immediately so much better and that's how it was for me but then there's other clients who like you said there's transitional symptoms actually their digestion will get worse at first Mm -hmm. before it gets better 
So that that becomes tricky. That one's really tricky because, okay, you're already dealing with, you know, the fears of weight gain, the fears around food, but now you're also dealing with the fear and discomfort of adding in more food, which is what you need to do to improve improve your relationship to food and probably even improve your digestion too, um, but along with like other forms of support. So so that is the trickier situation. I would say for clients in that in that position, we always start with a break from all intense exercise. So they can do they do and usually they want that anyways. If we if we're really listening to their desires, they've been so focused and obsessed with like movement has all has all been about force for so long and burning calories that if they really tune into what they want, they're burnt out from it and they really do just want to rest or just go for walks or do some stretching. And and that's where we always start if, if they're ready. Sometimes we need, to, we need to do it slowly because there's so much fear around it. Um, but that can be huge, especially for bloat, at least anecdotally, I've found for my clients, the ex- intense distension and all of that becomes so much better when they take an exercise break. And I'm assuming that like, the, the lowering of cortisol from not being in an overtrained state and the just the less less stress in their in their body's ability to like actually digest and take the time to digest and assimilate food and get into rest and digest mode is what's probably helping that. So that's always where I'll start if we haven't done that yet, at least start working towards that or if they're ready, go full full throttle and take a full break. Um, and then also, you know, most of my clients start with baby steps around food and exercise. Most of them don't start with a full exercise break and and fully going to per, full permission to eat. They usually start, we usually start by identifying all the ways that fear of weight gain is showing up in their relationship to food and where they're restricting and, and, and trying to control and then slowly breaking those. So usually we're in that position anyways, but that's definitely the approach I would take with clients clients in that in in that position is let's start with with small baby steps starting to acknowledge where the rules and restrictions are if their main problem is just severely under eating like you said slowly building up and then like we'll use oftentimes we'll use uh digestive enzymes around meal time like this is kind of like the cursory stuff i'm talking about that i'll do for digestion with clients we'll use digestive enzymes we'll do like the deep breathing around meal times things to stimulate the vagus nerve and then a lot of the time even it unintentionally sometimes because it's become such a habit a lot of things that are contributing to the bloat especially is that they are they're still and i was just talking about this on a recording i did of my own podcast before meeting you guys but they they're stuck in this mindset of trying to choose the foods that pack the least calories for the most amount of volume so they're overdoing it on vegetables they're overdoing it on the fiber they're overdoing it on these foods that have so much air and water in them like rice cakes and uh you know a bunch of protein powder and a bunch of like lean protein that's all protein zero fat so sometimes a lot of the time just moving them to a place where they're eating foods that pack more calories in a smaller package and it are not so like rough on the system and and um fibrous and stuff like that and voluminous that improves things a lot too. So it's a combination of all of those things. Um, but those are kind of like the main sort of like beginning steps I'll, I'll try with clients like that. And then as we take the baby steps, things improve a little bit more. They can eat a little bit more. They can challenge another food rule and then it can get better and better. And then, like I said, if things are really, really bad, I'll refer out to, you know, we'll work with another gut health dietitian on a specific, maybe it's usually supplement protocols because my clients unless they really, really need to be like celiac or something or being lactose intolerant and really need to not be eating a food, like 
that's the last, last, far last resort is to restrict any food. And we almost, we ne- basically never go there. Um, and this is why I'm glad we have all these tools available because we have supplements, we have, you know, the just lifestyle interventions like the deep breathing and the stomach massage and, you know, walking and whatever, um, and meditation, stress management. So yeah, that's kind of how I go about it. Yeah, I, I love that because it's like um, nutrition and lifestyle first, and then there's other tools. I think the problem in the functional space that I found is that it it sometimes goes, and again, I'll, I'll interweave supplements at the beginning of, of working with someone too, so I'm not mm-hmm. saying that, but like sometimes they jump so hard into like the supplement regimes without Mm -hmm. any discussion around like, again, what your plate actually looks like, what your lifestyle actually is. And they'll usually be like, oh yeah. And you're stressed and like do stress management, but like no coaching around it. Like it's such a broad um, category of things. It's funny. I was talking with a a client yesterday who's like just not programmed to be a stress manager like in general, like it's just not in her programming. She's like always been someone that just gives, gives, gives and never like, you know, takes time for herself and, and, you know, you're right. Right. So I was like talking to her and we're, she was like, I don't even know where to begin with stress management. And I was like, okay, like, and we were, I was reminding her of the, some of the things that we were doing for stress management. She was like, Oh, and then I was like, why don't you make a menu? of stress management so that like when you are in every day, like look at it, maybe set an alarm on your phone and be like, okay, it's like stress management time. Here is like a list of things I can do. I like that. And like, what sounds good for, what sounds good to me today? It doesn't have to be, you know, that I meditate every day, but I have to be doing at least one thing. That yeah. kind yeah. of. Pick from the menu. I'm writing this down with my notes from last time for the record. <laughs> yes, but I, I think, you know, a stress management menu can, can be really helpful. But I like that that sort of uh, the foundational pieces are solid uh, yeah. in your approach versus jumping straight into like protocols, what Nikki was saying. It's like yeah. you need to have this foundational piece in play, these foundational pieces in place or else they're just going to go ignored and they could be huge yeah. factors for, for, I think they are huge factors for people. Yeah. Or else it's the same thing as a doctor giving a medication. I mean, you think that right. it's not because it's a supplement and it's like herbal or food based, but it's the same thing. You're not taking a root cause approach. If you're, if you're just saying here, take the supplement, but actually you take zero time for yourself. You're not getting enough sleep. You have disordered eating. You're exercising constantly and not giving your body enough rest. Like, this is a true root cause approach. And then, yeah, but so, and then sometimes supplements, a lot of times supplements are part of that. Like say you have a nutrient deficiency or something along those lines right. or adding in a digestive enzyme. If you don't have the, like Mike, that's a big issue with my clients is their bodies have just like suppressed and slowed down and are just like, okay, well, you're not, you're not getting us anything or you're giving us a million things and, and you just don't produce as much stomach acid or enzymes or whatever that you need to digest food. So yeah, I totally agree yeah. with that. And I think almost like the supplements and the herbs can almost, again, like give permission to people to <laughs> ignore what they want to ignore because yeah. it gives them this illusion, this air of, oh, I'm doing, I'm working on it. I'm treating it with this stuff. 
and yeah. this stuff I'm okay with, and this stuff feels safe. And yeah, it's like it's expensive and it's a lot of pills, but I'm more comfortable with taking all these pills. And I have this authority figure who recommended all the pills to me mm-hmm. versus, you know, acknowledging that your marriage is stressing you the hell out or that you hate your job and it's sucking your soul out or, you know, that you have a dysfunctional relationship with your mom or whatever it might be. But like, again, whatever opportunity we get to ignore the scary stuff, the big stuff and rely on something else, most of us are going to take that whenever we can. Yeah. And yeah. And Along with the stress management thing, because I wanted to, I wanted to bring that up. Stress management is like when someone tells, when someone tells me like, or when I'm looking at, say I'm reading a book or I'm looking at some, you know, like uh, approaches to managing a certain problem. And and there's like a bullet point of like, manage stress. (laughs) That is my least favorite thing to see. I'm like, what does that even mean? (laughs) And as a person who is extremely anxious and stressed and having to constantly work on that, it's like, it's just the word stress management, I feel I feel like triggers me because I'm just like, just stop. What does that even mean? But I for at least for for people out there who resonate with like with disordered eating symptoms or disordered exercise or body image issues for my and that's my clientele where we start for stress management and this this goes for mental and physical stress is just healing from that like that is the main stressor in their life is their constant yeah. fear of weight gain their constant thoughts and anxieties around food their constant mm-hmm. need to be burning calories and moving like that is that is stress management Sure, meditation, journaling. I mean, I, that is a huge part of what I recommend and how and how we cope in in my programs right. and coaching. But that's where it has to start. Like that is your stress management. You have to mm-hmm. the, that you have to understand. And this is how I approach stress management in my personal life too. Is like, okay, what are your biggest stressors? And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of. Have you ever heard of um, Amelia and Emily Nagoski? And they wrote a book called mm-hmm. Burnout. It's really, really good. No. I've they heard have of that book. You've heard? I've never read it though. It yeah, it they good? have a they have a really good model of looking at stress and mm-hmm. and that you have to look at the stressors and you have to deal with those. Like, what is the stress? What are the stressors? So, like, like, uh, uh, like you guys were saying, it's it's your marriage, your work, whatever, all these different things. What are the stressors? And then you also have to deal with the actual stress itself. So the physical symptoms that are caused by those stressors, the cortisol, like you have to find a way to release that and release that from your body, whether it's going outside, movement, uh, crying, listening to music, whatever. So that's how I like to look at stress management is like, what is actually stressing you out? And we have to, we have to like get, go from the root cause and then also find ways to, to like move that stress actually through your body. Because as you guys know, that can stay stuck if you're not letting that go. So yeah, I just wanted to make that that point because it's again, it's just it can just be another band-aid if you're just saying like, oh, I'm gonna take this supplement or I'm gonna just start just start meditating and not actually address what these big stressors are in my life. And for my clients, again, it's it's the disordered eating, the body image issues and all that stuff. I like that. And I think it's almost analogous to detoxification in a weird I've I've sounding like such a big detox person in this episode. <laughs> yeah. I'm really not. Um, but it's kind of analogous because like on the the occasions where this comes up. As an example, if you were exposed to arsenic, right, like something that's very toxic, you need to try to get the arsenic out of your body and detox it, right? You need to try to process it better. And also now you need to deal with the ramifications of the fact that you are burdened by this poison. And you have to think of, all right, did I deplete my glutathione? Did I rev up inflammatory cytokines? Like, 
you have to deal with the downstream consequences of the thing and also deal with the thing. And I feel like it's kind of the same with stress. It's like you need to try to have those, you know, to try to develop coping mechanisms and try to mitigate that stress roller coaster or control it in some way and like acknowledge the things that are going to send you on that roller coaster. And then also just try to understand like how it, how it manifests in your body. Like I know with me, I realized more in the last year or two, like I almost always have cold hands and feet and I, I am a self-proclaimed corpse person despite not having a thyroid issue and not having like any overt blood flow issues that I could think of. But I realized only last year or two, that is very much triggered by stress. Like Mm. as a baseline, it'll kind of always be there. But like when I'm acutely stressed, I forget what the incident was now. I remember in the last year or two, I had something really acutely stressed me out at work. And I noticed that my hands immediately were freezing ice cold. Wow. I had this epiphany of, oh my God, like this is actually a way that my body is telling me that it's super stressed. And now I know I could use that as a way to monitor my stress in like a physical way. Um, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. So this is good information for me because my fingers and toes are always just cold. People will touch them and they're like, what's wrong with you? But I don't have thyroid issues either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Look and see if the stress is related because I think that that has been one of the bigger revelations for me. The other thing like with stress in particular is I think it's, I always tell my patients, we can't completely remove stress. Like you would just, you would melt into a puddle and be a pile of goo. Anyway, but there's going to be some stress in your life. But I think a lot of us are on this roller coaster of like, oh my God, I'm stressed, crash and burn. Oh my God, I'm stressed, crash and burn. Holy shit, I'm stressed, crash and burn. And if we can try to even it out so the roller coaster has less profound hills and valleys and like they're a little bit drawn out, I think that that ends up being more conducive to a happy life. And you don't get mm-hmm. this like surge of stress chemistry and then a whole bunch of inflammation that follows and then a crash and burn and your metabolism is getting yanked back and forth for God knows how long. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of how I communicate it to is like, the goal is not for you to have zero stress. Even the people on Instagram that are like sipping uh, Chardonnay under a palm tree on their private yeah I don't know like you know like the pictures of the influencers like even those people have stress they're just not showcasing probably more stress than actually the person who's not an influencer on Instagram because that shit can be toxic yeah so like don't don't live under the illusion that the goal is to have zero stress in your life just know that you want to smoothen out the roller coaster ride so it's not tossing you every which way every day of your life yeah um, I know we have to let you go momentarily, but I do want to throw in one more thing that I've observed and I've taken away from your Instagram feed. Um, I, and I forget exactly how you've, you've generally worded it, but I thought it was really worthwhile when I saw some posts where you basically, you, you pointed out that binging is a symptom of under eating or restricting mm-hmm. and basically like giving yourself the food freedom and giving yourself the permission to eat foods, even if they are junk or calorie dense, or not nutritious, like if you allow yourself to have food and not restrict on a day to day basis, your body is not going to have those strong, strong cravings. And you're not going to, it's like, if you don't bring the pendulum way over here to the left, it's not going to ricochet back hard to the right. If you can kind of be somewhere in the middle, 
where you allow yourself to have a little bit of something on a regular basis and like don't have so much judgment around it. But do you want to weigh in on that for just a minute? Oh, yes, I do. So your pendulum description is great because this is how I describe it to clients a lot. So so it's really important to understand, first of all, like what binging even means, because a lot of people call something a binge when it's not truly a binge. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are some people who have and, and there's like there's a spectrum, there's a spectrum, just like eating disorders are a spectrum. So a lot of people feel out of control around food and have periods where they feel kind of out of control. So they might call that a binge. And it, it can, it's, it's, it's not exactly the same as a true clinical binge. So for people who are just, you know, maybe they've been yo-yo dieting for a long time, or maybe they've always had body image issues or always had like some slight guilt and shame around food. And they have these periods where they feel out of control, but they don't have a full blown, they don't struggle with full blown binge eating, which truly feels like you are like snapping in and snapping out basically like Mm -hmm. something else is like an external entity is coming in and despite it's like a war in your mind despite you saying no you don't want to binge you don't want to do this like remember you want to be skinny you want to be fit this is how you want to look like don't do this you will literally be at war and then some other part of your brain feels like it takes over and it's like tunnel vision for food and it's very much so an episode Mm -hmm. like you cannot stop eating you will do you will do anything for food. I mean, I've had clients who will their parents boarded up the kitchen and they literally in a binge in a binge episode, they like, like pulled down boards, left the house, ran away, ate food off the floor, stole food from roommates, ate food out of the garbage, like, and I've done all of these things. I mean, aside from pulling down boards because nobody else ever boarded up the kitchen which i would not recommend if you're struggling with binging but either way when you when it gets to a point and i I make this distinction because i don't want people to to you know think like oh this is extreme and and, because i don't think everybody needs this approach but the type when it comes to the type of people that i work with they're dealing with full-blown binge eating maybe it's not maybe they've never stolen food or whatever done something really really crazy that feels so intense but they, they go through these episodes where it just feels like a complete loss of control around food and tunnel vision for food. That is an indication of some severe restriction, whether it is caloric or mental, like to, to the point where like say a, a functional, someone who's taking like a functional approach to nutrition, they might, they might eat enough calories overall, but they are like think sugar is the devil and only eat paleo foods. And that mental restriction registers basically the same as as actually under eating calories. And it could be you may say like, Oh, I'm not really s- severely under eating. I'm not I'm not I've never been underweight. But it, somebody like myself who just exposed themselves to um, a low calorie diet for so many years and over exercised and had a bunch of mental restrictions and had body image issues and had an extreme fear of weight gain, that stuff compounds over time. And when it gets to the point where you're experiencing those full blown binges, with consistency, that pendulum that you're talking about, Nicole, where it's like, okay, well, you pulled it to this, you pulled, you pulled it to this way. That's why you're, you're, you're swinging in the other direction with a binge. That actually, the way that my clients heal from binge eating and the way that I finally healed after so many years of trying and, and knowing that binging, there was a restrictive component to binging is that you can't just be, you can't just go from this side of the pendulum to then you'll be in the middle ground. Okay. So I'll just, you know, eat a bit more not be not have many as many rules, but I'll still have everything in moderation, I'll still be, 
you know, I'll still eat what I what I view as like a healthy, balanced diet. Yeah. You really like my clients really have to go through a point where they swing in the other direction in their day to day lives. Like when my clients start letting go of food rules and truly eating until they're satisfied, they they do not crave vegetables for the most part. They crave all the foods they restricted. They want to yeah. eat every hour or two hours. They eat thousands and thousands of calories, most of them. And it, they're like, wait, this can't be healthy. Like, this is not what someone's, this is not, this can't be like how I'm supposed to eat. But ironically, like, that is the thing that allows them to, to then come back into the middle because yeah. their body needs that, that reassurance that, okay, we can have all these things. And they also need to really like calorically compensate for all that time that they were not eating enough. And that is how they come back into the middle. So if you've gotten to that point where, maybe you don't even binge, maybe you've lost a period or you struggle with like constant anxiety around food, but you've never actually binged. Oftentimes that pendulum needs to swing in the other direction for a little while before it naturally comes back into the middle. So that's what I would say with, with binging um, is when it gets to that point, there needs to be that pendulum swing. But when maybe you're on like a little bit low, like lower on the spectrum, where maybe you have some out of control feelings around food, Sometimes it's just a matter of identifying those things, healing these mindset patterns and giving yourself more permission. And it doesn't really swing as much in the other direction, but there's nuance and spectrums to it and all that stuff. But yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, I think that was helpful. And I like the to kind of follow the pendulum analogy. It's almost like if you imagine a pendulum swinging in one plane, right, just straight right to left, it's almost like there's like a little road, like a little path that kind of comes out in another axis. And it's like a little back road to the middle ground where you actually want to be. But the road actually starts out over here. And it feels scary and dysfunctional, like, oh, this is the bad place, this, you know, where I'm eating all the things. And I'm binging, that's the scary place to be. Because when I was in just this one direction, or this um, one dimensional pendulum swing, hell, like starting a path in this place is scary because you only imagine it going back over to the other side. But it's yeah. like, no, there's a, it's a 3D. It's a path that kind of winds back around and then brings you to the middle ground. That's almost the way I would kind of picture it in my mind. Yeah, I like that. That's a good, that's a good visualization. Lots of metaphors and analogies here on the IBS Freedom <laughs> Podcast. If there's anything we're good at over here. <laughs> All right. Well, I know we need to let you go. We would talk to you forever and ever if we could, but I know so fun to get to. Uh, maybe we'll have hashtag you on the pod again for that. Hashtag toxic farts. Hashtag toxic farts. That's the hashtag for this episode. <laughs> and that'll segue <laughs> wonderfully into the hydrogen sulfide episode, which we're going to record next. Ah. Enough, so maybe uh, we will talk about those toxic farts in our next episode for that matter. <laughs> but oh my goodness, it was such a ball. I hope we can have you on again, Elena. Again, guys, oh, I would if love you to. want to soak up more of her knowledge and more of her goodness, check out the Weightlifting Nutritionist podcast and the Instagram handle at Elena Kunicki underscore RD on Instagram. Highly recommend. I've been following her for a while and there's just a lot of little epiphanies where I'm like, yeah, yeah, you get it, girl. Heart that. (laughs) Absolutely. So I highly recommend, actually, I highly recommend following both you and Amy, because there's a lot of moments where I see Amy's post. I recommend too, following like, you, Nikki. Yes, shucks, thanks. <laughs> You're, You're a following peach. everybody. <laughs> I'm getting better with the gram. You know, I'm kind of the old lady of Instagram out of this group, but I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah do it. Yeah, Instagram's just kind cool. of figuring out the and real annoying. still. But you know, I, I'll get there. But uh, but yeah, yeah, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We had this an absolute ball. 
This was a great conversation to have. And as always, guys, if you're learning about, uh, or if you are listening to this podcast while you're learning on iTunes or one of those podcasting apps, if you could rate us five stars, that would be super duper amazing. And if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and comment if you have questions. We do cover those questions in our Q&A episodes. And like, subscribe, ring the bell, do all the things you do on YouTube. And we will see you very, very soon in another episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.